Thank you for choosing to listen to this message. At Coastal, we believe in changing and enriching lives through the power of the Word. We pray that this message would be a blessing to you. Last week we had one well of a time, and I'm hoping to continue that. I know last week, actually, I think I rocked the boat a little bit, um, and maybe I went a little overboard, uh, but hey, whatever floats your boat. Um, I don't want to get too wrapped up in the details. I think we got some bigger fish to fry this week, and I know maybe I'm a little shellfish, uh, but I want to be more Pacific uh, this week, and so... Hey, I figured last week we kicked it off with the dad jokes. We got to kick it off with the dad jokes this week. And so I'm done. Maybe I can think of some more for next week. But hey, I'm excited about tonight. We're going to dive into the book of Jonah and continue our study. And, and really, you know, it, it's about connecting, right? Sea dogs and sinners, how the church connects with God's heart. And, and, and there's a lot of connection going on today, and typically it's the scrolling or it's the bin watching, but God wants us to just unplug from the scrolling and the bin watching, binge watching and just to connect with his heart. And last week we had a great time. The heart of this series is really just to connect so that we might clearly see his love for this world. God has a huge heart of mercy we saw last week for the world. And I believe that he's preparing our hearts and he's preparing us for a fresh outpouring of his love for this world. And listen, you and I were made for more than just making money, retiring, and then dying. That we're made for more than that, from the old to the young, from the weak to the the strong, from the poor to the rich, from the qualified to the unqualified unqualified, God is raising up you and I so that we might go declare his excellencies to a dark, scary world, just like he did Jonah. And and, and it's the stories that like Jonah, where, where we're reminded that God is using his people and remember Jonah, it, it, I, I, I kind of get the idea as I read through the book of Jonah, I kind of get the idea that he's a bit of a nationalist. He's a bit of a, hey, Israel's dominant and compared to all the other nations. And I, I get that as I read through and I begin to see his attitude and some of the responses that he has into some of the questions that he gets. But, but remember, God wants to lift up the nation of Israel as a light to the other nations, to the Gentile nations. It says in Deuteronomy chapter four, verses five through six, and this is Moses speaking. He says, look, I I now teach you these decrees and regulations just as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may obey them in the land you are about to enter and occupy. And in verse six, and here it is, obey them completely and you will display your wisdom and intelligence among the surrounding nations. And when they hear all these decrees, they will exclaim, how wise and prudent are the people of this great nation. God has lifted up the nation of Israel to be a light to the Gentiles. Isaiah 42, 6, I, the Lord, have called you to demonstrate my righteousness. I will take you by the hand and guard you, and I will give you to my people Israel as a symbol of my covenant with them, and you will be a light to guide the nations. Isaiah 49, 6, speaking of Jesus prophetically, Isaiah says, you will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I will make you a light to the Gentiles and you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. And God is holding up the nation of Israel to be a light, to be a blessing. And that's what he's calling Jonah into. That was the call of Jonah. And last week we looked at the first part of Jonah 
And that's where he's in the Mediterranean Sea and he's on the run from God. And, and we looked at the fact that Jonah saw that, that God had, had called him, but it was an interruption to what he wanted to do rather than an invitation to what God wanted to do. And, and we looked at the storms of life and how the storms of life come in. And it almost seems like it's there to destroy Jonah. It's there to destroy the sailors. But in fact, the storms of life, and you and I can attest to this as well, they don't destroy us. When God send us in, sends us into a storm or sends a storm our way, it's not to destroy us, but it's to develop us. And that's what he was doing to Jonah by sending that storm. And then we read through chapter two, Jonah's cry for help. And we saw that he begins to recognize not, not only that, that the nation of Nineveh, the city of Nineveh needs the mercy of God, not only that the sea dogs, you know, the sailors need the mercy of God, but he to himself needs the mercy of God. And, and, th and this week, we're going to be looking at part two of Jonah, where, where Jonah finds himself in Nineveh doing God's mission, doing what God had called him to do. And I'm excited about next week. We're going to take a, 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 a chapter four next week, and we'll finish chapter three this week. Uh, and we're going to be wrapping it up next week, by the way. And then we're going to take a week break. And then uh, Pastor Val's going to come in and, and speak on a, on a particular topic. But, but this week, we're going to talk about God's amazing character on on display. And I want you to turn with me over to chapter three of the book of Jonah, and we're going to start in verse one. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I have given you. This time Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. So part of the character that we're going to see on display right now is that we serve, and it's there in your outline, if you've got your outline, a God of do-overs. A God of do-overs. You know, God could have just written Jonah off. I mean, he could have figured out, I mean, he, he, he planned for a fish to come swallow Jonah, and Jonah lived in that fish for three days and three nights. I think God could have orchestrated some other way to do this, to get the message over to the, the city of Nineveh. But nonetheless, he chose not to. Now, Jonah, you remember, he's in the storm. He thinks he's done. He thinks he's finished. He thinks he is done with, the sailors are done with him. He's done with himself. He's telling them, hey, just throw me overboard. I'm done. God's done. Kill me. If you want to save your life, kill me. But God didn't think that. In fact, God sent that storm to get Jonah to his wit's end so that God can now have Jonah in his weakest moment so that God could shine strongly in Jonah's life. And he wants to use Jonah. He wants to give Jonah a second chance. And it was in the weakest moment that God could show himself to be strong by giving Jonah a second chance. Now, when we read through scripture, we get this idea that God's character really is a God of do-overs. You remember Abraham. I mean, Abraham was the guy that, you know, he's, he's called by God in Genesis chapter 12. God's like, hey, listen, Abraham, I want you to go to a place where I'm gonna tell you. I'm not gonna tell you now, but I want you to head out there. I want you to leave everything you know behind and I want you to go to a place I'm gonna tell you. And Abraham in faith gets up and starts going. I mean, it's crazy. He leaves everything behind and he goes. All his comforts, all his earthly, everything and just goes. 
And yet when he runs into a couple of roadblocks, he's in Egypt and they're like, hey, who's Sarah? And he denies that Sarah is his wife for his own safety. Not once, but on two separate occasions. And then on top of that, you know, he's, 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 he's told that he's gonna have this promised child. He's told, and, and it's not happening in his timing. And, and Sarah's getting a little impatient as well. And so they're like, what do we do? And she's like, why don't you sleep with my servant Hagar? And he's like, ah, oh, great idea, okay. Yeah, like, okay. So, so he pulls that one off and then he has to clean that mess up later because it was such a wrong move. And yet God gives Abraham a do-over. Maybe, maybe you remember David. He commits adultery, right? He has sex with Bathsheba and he's not supposed to, should have been out at war, but he wasn't, you know? And so then he's got to figure out how do I cover this up? How do I, how do I cover my, 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 what I've done here? And so he calls Uriah over and he's going to try to get Uriah to go in and sleep with his wife Bathsheba. Um, and it doesn't happen. Uriah's got too much honor for that because he's supposed to be out at war with his soldiers. And now Jonah's got to figure out what to do. So he has Uriah murdered. And yet God, I mean, David has Uriah murdered. I said Jonah, didn't even, <laughs> thank you. Think about uh, um, Moses. Now this is some mafia style stuff where you kill somebody and you take them out to the desert and you bury them in the sand. And yet God gives them a second chance. Think about Peter. I would never, I'm by your side, Jesus. I will never leave you. We are in this together. Oh, wait, I don't know him. I, and three times Peter denies Jesus. And yet God gives him a do-over, a second chance. John Mark, you know, Paul and Barnabas are on the mission field. They're proclaiming the excellencies of Christ and they're out there going after it. And John Mark's like, ah, I'm out. He leaves them high and dry on the mission field. And it, and it literally split the relationship between Barnabas and Paul up because of that whole episode. And yet God gives John Mark a second chance, comes back on the mission field and is very faithful in proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. We serve a God of do-overs. And my question to you tonight is, how do we seize God's second chances for us today? How do we lay hold of those do-overs? Because all of us have been given chance one, chance two, chance three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So how do we begin to seize those second chances, those do-overs for us today? Well, number one, we have to recognize our need for God's mercy. Now, now we, we kind of touched on this a little bit last week, but when we fail to recognize that we need God's mercy and God's forgiveness just as much as everybody else, we begin to run from the call of God in our lives. But when we begin to understand how much mercy and forgiveness that God has shown us, we are now empowered to go show the world how merciful our God really is, slow to anger, steadfast, and love. Why? Because no longer is the mercy and the forgiveness this theoretical pie in the sky, theological idea, but it is actually very practical to us because we have experienced the reality of it. And now we can go share it with conviction and with power. So not only do we have to recognize our need for God's mercy if we're going to lay hold of these second chances, but we have to leave the past behind. We have to leave the past 
behind. We have to stop looking in the rearview mirror of life and reminding ourselves of all the, the things that we've done and the horrible things that we've done and the, the shame and the guilt that come with it. The past can't be changed, but the future can be made. And so let's learn from our past, but let's not allow the past to anchor us down and keep us from moving, from doing what God has called us to do. And number three, we have to get up and go. We got to get up and go. I want you to think about this real quick with with me. I don't know where it is uh, that Jonah was spit up. Uh, It was on the beach somewhere, right? He was spit up. But how was he supposed to get to Nineveh? He didn't have MapQuest. There were no Google Maps. You know, like, was he, was there a, was there a camel waiting for him? Like, thanks God. You know, how was he supposed to eat? Like, this isn't just this, you know, uh, down the block kind of a trip. Remember he was 500. So, so remember the city of Nineveh, which is modern day Iraq, right? Is like 500 miles from where Israel is, from where he's at in the promised land, 500 miles Northeast. And he was heading 2,500 miles to Spain. What was that place called, Ian? Harshish. <laughs> that was a tough one. <laughs> he was heading 2,500 miles. I don't know where, how far they got. I don't know where it spit him up, but that was no small journey. So my question is, how, how did he get there? He had to plan his way. If we're going to get up and if we're going to go, if we're going to lay hold of God's second chances by getting up and going, we have to come up with a plan. Now, I'll be honest with you, sometimes, you know, coming up with a plan and looking at all the things, you know, that we need to have straight in our lives and all the things that are keeping us from truly pursuing what God has called us to do can be quite overwhelming sometimes. But with great intentions, we tell ourselves, okay, this is, this is it. I'm going to do it. You know, I feel like my health is holding me back from, from pursuing God. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start getting healthy. And so we, we, we go out and we buy all the salads at Publix. And we're just like, yes, I'm going to do this. And then we get there and we're like, you know, ah, I just feel like, I don't feel like salad today. And, and so and we try. We've got great <laughs> intentions on trying this. But somehow those bad habits begin to, to creep back in and take hold of us. And now it's, it's not a allowing us to pursue the call that God has us. And so with great intentions, we set out on this journey, but then those bad habits repeat themselves. And it's not because we don't want to change, but because I believe we have the wrong system for change. There was, there was a book that was reckon, recommended to me. It was called Atomic Habits. And the author, James Clear, he sets out on this journey to help his readers to learn how to develop this proven uh, framework for progress and success in everyday life. It's a, it's a really good book. It's a business book um, on how to create these small habits, and it's great. I loved it. And, and a part of this framework are, are where we have these tiny habits that we begin to form, but they've got these atomic implications, And he says, the seed of every habit is a single tiny decision. In other words, if we want to see big change in our lives, we need to start with the small decisions we make every day. We get to where we want to go and we get to where we don't want to go the exact same way, one day at a time, one decision at a time. And he says, bad habits repeat themselves again and again, not because we don't want to change, but because we have the wrong system for change. Change doesn't happen 
quickly, but if we keep at it slow and steady, change will eventually become big. You know, you don't just go run a marathon, right? I, I recently asked my daughters, I'm like, hey, do you guys wanna, let's, let's do a marathon together. Let's, let's do this, this, this marathon as a family. And they're looking at me like, no, dad, it's never gonna happen. We're not running with you. And so I go out and I start running about six, seven months ago. And I'm like, I'm going to do this. I get like one mile and I'm literally thinking I'm having a heart attack about to die, right? I'm not going to run a marathon by just saying, I want to run a marathon and go out there. And so I had to run one mile every day. And that's what I did. And I almost died doing it. I mean, the people around me thought or thinking, man, this guy's probably running like eight, nine miles. Like this, wow. And I'm like sweating of dying. Like, and so after a while, after weeks and weeks of running one mile, I was able to then run two miles. And then eventually I worked up to three miles and then four, then five, then six. Then one day I'm doing eight miles like it's nothing. And the guy on the treadmill looking at me, he says, hey man, you're making the rest of us look bad. Stop. If you're gonna run a marathon, you don't just go run a marathon. You got to train for a marathon. And hey, listen, maybe you're a person that doesn't run and you're like, I want to run a marathon. And maybe for you, it's not running a mile. Maybe it's just walking around the block one day. Whatever it takes, we begin to develop these small little habits that have great atomic implications. And maybe you have a problem thinking on the negative thoughts, right? Sometimes I do that. I just go through, I've got to tell myself, okay, today I'm taking captive those thoughts. And then I get a phone call the first thing in the morning and it just throws me off my game. I'm like, ah, you know, and so I've got to develop these small habits. And so maybe just one time a day, just once a day, I'm going to take that thought captive and think on something that's pure and lovely and right and good. One time. And if I do that today, and if I do that tomorrow, next week, I'm, I'm doing it twice a day. And then in the next week, three or four, five, six times a day, and next thing you know, I am able to now take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ because I have developed these small habits. Listen, if we are gonna lay hold of the second chances that God has given us, if we were gonna go after these do-overs that God is handing to us, we gotta get up and go. We gotta come up with a plan. And just like Jonah took one step after another to get to the city of Nineveh, we've gotta take one step after another to do the call that God has called us to do. One small decision today can have great implications tomorrow. And listen, you know, you may have some severe setbacks, but I want to tell you, you are more resilient than you know. And you would be amazed at what you can do if you trust God, lean on his strength, and get up today. Don't live in your shame. Don't live in your guilt. God says, listen, I'm gonna give you a second chance. I'm gonna give you a do-over. Here it is. Go after it. This is your chance to stand up, to arise, to get up, and to go. I, I, I recently read this very interesting story. It was, it was actually pretty crazy, but this interesting story about the human body. And, 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 and they say if you fall three stories, only half the people who fall survive. The other half die. If you fall 10 stories, it's very likely you're going to die. In fact, if you survive, it's a miracle. There's a story of a man named Reno who was in Manhattan, New York, and he fell 47 stories from the rooftop of a New York uh, uh, skyscraper. Now, this guy, he's a window cleaner, and his brother's a window cleaner, 
And so they're getting up on their, their rig and they're going up and they, they, they go all the way up to the rooftop, get off onto the rooftop and they, they go over to this, this uh, cable uh, uh, concoction to, which lowers them down so that they can clean the windows. And so they get on and they start lowering down to start at the top to start cleaning these windows. And one of the cables breaks and on the left side, his brother goes falling down. And literally they said that when they, when they kind of did the calculations, he must've been going 120 miles before he hit the pavement in the alley next to the building. But this guy, Marino, and next thing you know, the, the right side breaks off and he goes straight down to the ground. And it says that the emergency crew shows up. They see him. He literally is, they, they, they revive him and he literally tries to stand up. He breaks 10 bones in his body. The, the, they throw him in the ambulance. They rush him to the hospital. And three weeks later, he wakes up wondering what happened survived. 47 floors. He is a Christian. He's a Christ follower. And today in church, his job, and he does it, he just goes on walks and begins to raise funds for the local church where he lives. That's the call that God has. And he suffered some side effects. Yeah. And maybe you've fallen, and just like this guy who's fallen and bounced back, so to speak, in life, maybe you've fallen a lot, and God is saying, listen, I want to bounce you back. I want to give you a do-over. I want to give you another chance. We serve a God of do-overs. We serve a God of second chances, and he's not looking just to give us other chances. Not, not one, two, three, four. He's looking to change our hearts. God knows we need more than second chances. We need a changed heart. And not only is God a God of do-overs, but check this out. God is a God of revival. God is a God of revival. I want to read to you uh, again, in, in starting in verse 4 of chapter 3. It says this, it says, on the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. That was the message, eight words. That's all you had to do, Jonah, come on. 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. The people of Nineveh believed God's message and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. And when the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne. He took off his royal robes. He, de he dressed them in burlap and sat on a heap of ashes. And then the king and his nobles sent this decree throughout the entire city. No one, not even the animals from your herds and flocks may eat or drink anything at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. Who can tell? Perhaps even yet God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. <laughs> wow. After receiving the do-over, Jonah, Jonah goes after it. He goes and he preaches to Nineveh and the greatest revival known to mankind takes place. 600,000 Ninevites get saved that day. Wow. 
You know, and oftentimes when we hear the word revival, there's a lot of mixed emotions. There's a lot of stirred emotions that come up. You know, for some of us, it's that exciting time where we know that God is, is gonna move and, and he's got something planned and radical, something radical is gonna happen. And so we get really, really excited. For others, we're like, oh yeah, revivals. You know, those are great. That God did amazing work in church history. But you know, our culture in our society, uh, we're, we're, we're too much in a decline. There's no hope for us. There's no renewal. Others, of us are like, are you kidding me? Revival again? Oh my gosh, that means we're going to sing the same chorus over and over and over and over and over and over again. Church is going to last forever. It's never going to end. And others of us, you know, we just have these emotions and these things that come up when we talk about revival, but revival is something significant. Let's not lose the flavor and the taste of what God wants to do. And I believe he wants to do another outpouring of revival in our day. I believe it with all of my heart. God is not yet done. Revival is something significant. Revival seems to be this transformation that happens not just in this small thing, but it's this radical transformation that happens on a big scale that brings great progress and growth and kingdom fruit to cities and people groups and, and, and movements and regions or nations. Revival is transformation gone viral. Revival is God's tool to move history towards his ends. God is a, a, a relational God and he's, in, he's intent on inviting people like you and I into his mission, into the world. And so he uses revival to align our hearts with his hearts so we can pursue his purposes. And it seems to me that revival comes in two parts. Number one, it happens in the church. And the, and the people of God, like you and me, we get revived, we get excited, we just get renewed inside and we just become on fire for Jesus. And then we go outside these walls and we begin to declare the good news of Jesus Christ and revival happens outside. And it is very, you can see it, it has an impact on society itself. We see this right here in the book of Jonah. Jonah experiences transformation in the belly of the fish. And then he goes and he preaches God's message to the people in Nineveh. And Jonah's message was simple yet so profound. You know, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. And, and in scripture, you know, the number 40, it just represents, you know, judgment or trial and then finally triumph. Right, remember the nation of Israel, how they wandered around the wilderness for 40 years and then finally they get to enter into the promised land? Remember how the rain came down on Noah for 40 days and finally the rain stopped and the waters receded? You remember Jesus in the desert, 40 days and 40 nights, and then he comes out victorious and starts his ministry? 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed and finally revival comes. And so what does true revival look like? When I, when I think about the book of Jonah, I know the book of Jonah gives us some really good insights as to what true revival looks like. Number one, true revival looks like believing God. Believing God. I want you to notice with me what it says in verse five. The people of Nineveh believed God's message. When we believe God and his word, he is now able to transform our lives as he sees fit. Revival begins with faithful preaching and then faithful hearing of God's word. Revival looks like bowing to God. 
In other words, allowing God to be the king of your life and not you being the king of your own life. And I want you to notice right there in in verse six, it says, when the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne. I love that. There's some significance right there. He steps down from his throne, revivals this internal thing that happened, but it has external signs and true revival is stepping off the throne of your life so that God can sit on the throne of your life. And I love the fact that he took off his royal robes The guy didn't even have one robe. He had several robes. And royal robes signified wealth, authority, worthiness, and honor. And the king was willing to lay it all down and bow to God in humility. Wow. And then he dresses himself with with this burlap or or in some translations, sackcloth, and he sits on these ashes. And and, in this burlap or this sackcloth, it was like this coarse material. Primarily and normally it was made from goat's hair. And and you would put this on and, and you would sit in these ashes and it was this external declaration of rejecting the earthly comforts and the pleasures because these earthly pleasures and these earthly comforts had, had become a significant place in their heart. And so they're removing those and allowing God to have that place in their heart. And it was an external declaration of mourning. What have we done? Why have we done this? And so revival looks like believing God, bowing to God, but it also looks like praying to God. And I don't know if you caught that in verse eight, everyone must earnestly pray to God. Everyone must earnestly pray to God. Revival means earnestly praying to God. It means coming to God with passion and seriousness about our need for him. And then of course, not only praying to God, not only bowing to God, not only believing in God, but also repentance and turning to God. Verse eight continues, they must turn from their evil ways and stop their violence. Repentance means turning from your evil way and from the violence that is in your hands. Repentance means to change your mind and to turn from your previous sinful actions to God. And in the Christian life, uh, repentance doesn't describe what you must do to turn to God. It describes the very process of turning to God. And when we truly turn to him, we turn away from the things that displease him. And lastly, true revival believes in a hope for the future. A hope for the future. I don't know if you caught that where, they, where he says it there in, in, in uh, I believe it's uh, um, verse nine there. Who can tell perhaps even yet God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. The king sent a decree that had hope in it. God can change his mind, guys. There's hope for the future. Revival has hope in the mercy and the love of God. It says God can and will relent and that people can have life. And if we look out at the world today and what's going on in the world today, do you really believe that God can Speak to them 
and that they can turn from their ways and that God would show mercy? Or are you the type that says, no, they need God's judgment like Jonah? There's hope. There's hope for my family. There's hope for my country. There's hope for this world. God is bigger than any mess we make. And if we turn to him, he is more than able. Jonah is giving us some insights into God's character. And we've seen that God is a God of do-overs. We see that God is a God of revival. But now we're gonna see in this last verse, verse 10, that God is a God who relents. Let's read that together real quick. In verse 10, when God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and he did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. This is perhaps one of the strongest statements in scripture about God changing his mind. God honored Nineveh's repentance. And, and we heard last week how awesome the city was. I mean, it was phenomenal. I mean, they did such an amazing job. They hired these slaves to come do this. And, and, and what they built was phenomenal. But it wasn't only an awesome city. It was an awful city. The things that they had done, the sins that they had committed, the atrocities of what went on behind those walls was insane. And yet God relents from destroying Nineveh. And the past sin of Nineveh was a reason enough for God just to, to, to pour out his judgment. And one of the things that I've wrestled with, and maybe you have as well, is how can, how can both the mercy of God and the justice of God coexist? How's that even possible? How can God show mercy and still yet be a just God? You know, justice involves, you know, giving a deserved punishment for wrongdoing. And we open the news app on our phone and we see people on trial for killing somebody. And we want to see justice. And we follow the story and we see when he's handed down the verdict, prison for life. And we're like, yes, because we love justice. The state of Florida would never forgive a cold-blooded murderer if he said, I, I, I promise, I won't do it again. <laughs> oh, great, you're exactly right, you won't do it again. Not behind bars, you won't do it again. You know, justice. But here God relents, mercifully relents from destroying the people of Nineveh. Mercy is all about pardon and compassion for the offender. And so how can these two exist, mercy and justice, at the same time? How can God be both just and merciful at the same time? There's over 290 verses in the Old Testament and 70 in the New Testament that contain direct statements of God's mercy towards people. And yet the Bible also speaks of God's justice and his wrath over sin. And Paul, and, and it says right there in Colossians 3, 5 through 6, Paul says this, he says, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, to impurity, to passion, to evil desires, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And so let me, let me just say this. Christianity 
and you can look at other religions, but Christianity is unique in that God's mercy is not in opposition to God's justice. No, his mercy is shown through justice. And listen, listen, it was at the cross of Christ where mercy and justice kissed. And as Jesus died for the sinners, his death showcased the grace of God and the justice of God. Listen to Romans chapter three. I wanna read to you a few verses in chapter three, verses 24 through 26. This is Paul talking. He says in verse 24, yet God with undeserved kindness declares that we are righteous. And he did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. And this sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past, like Nineveh, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in the present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness for he himself is fair and just and he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believed in Jesus. In other words, mercy and justice kissed at the cross. Yes, you deserve justice and justice was served just not on you, on Jesus. At the cross, Jesus, God's justice was meted out in full on Jesus and God's mercy was extended in full on us who believe. God's perfect mercy was exercised through his perfect justice. We serve a God of mercy. He's a God of do-overs. He's a God of revivals. And he's also a God who relents. That is the God we serve. That is the God Jonah served. And now it's the God that the sea dogs and the sinners serve. How God's church connects with God's heart. That's the heart. And so Father, we just humbly come before you and we truly thank you for the justice that you've shown to us by putting it on Jesus and the mercy that you've shown to us by putting it on us. Your word says, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Thank you for the mercy of God. Lord, fill our hearts with your love and your forgiveness and your mercy so that we might be empowered to go proclaim it to a world who needs it. Have your way in our hearts, Lord. Father, we believe that you can do another outpouring. Lord, we believe that another revival can happen. And so Lord, use us, spark something in our hearts tonight that would set a flame in this city, that would set a flame in this state, that would set a flame in this country, that would ultimately impact the world, Lord, for your glory and in your name, Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. Thank you, guys.